Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. I don't know where I would be in life if it had not been for that initial belief in me. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm doing okay. I feel like we should be talking canoeing because we have, you've been getting a lot of rain. We've been getting a lot of rain. <laughs> right. We should take up some boating sports. I know. We're going to need it pretty soon just yeah. to get from here right. to the grocery store. Yeah. Get, get out the paddleboard. We have new choices for Olympic Day. <laughs> It's true. We're definitely going to have to paddle our three miles. We have an update from our last episode about the Tokyo 2020 tickets. Okay, so if you're in the U.S. and the other like eight or nine countries that CoSport serves, they are a little behind on their ticket lottery process because they had over a, a million users registered for tickets, which is record-breaking interest for them. They've had record-breaking interest in Japan. So now for CoSport people... Here's They sent out an email, but here's what you need to know. The prices are going to be available Thursday, June 20th, which is the day this show drops. And for you'll get the U.S. prices for your requested tickets in the morning. Uh, you have to log into your CoSport account to get all that stuff. You have until Saturday to reconfirm your request. And then if they have events where the requests exceed their number of allocated tickets, those requests are going to go into a free and quote unquote free and fair ballot process. And you'll find it out on June 24th if you get tickets. You'll have until June 27th to purchase them. If you didn't get into the lottery or you didn't get tickets in the lottery, ticket sales will start on July 2nd and it is a first come first serve basis. So be prepared for all of that. If you didn't make the co-sport deadline, your chance is coming up in the next round of ticketing soon. Well, Ken told us this was probably going to be the most desirable ticket of any sporting event in history. So yeah, it seems crazy. like he, he knew what he was talking about. Right. I also keep reminding myself what he also said is that there's going to be more opportunities to get tickets. Yes. There will be ways. So don't get discouraged if you didn't get in the lottery or if you got into this lottery and you didn't get any tickets. There's chance on July 2nd. If you don't get something then, there's going to be other chances. So just keep working at it. Right. Because they are, you know, we know from what he told us, they're holding back blocks of tickets for sponsors, for NGOs, for different committees. So it's not like every ticket that's available is right. coming online right. now. Let's move on to our guest, our Team Olympic Fever sport climber. Josh Levin is back to tell us about his involvement and growing up in the sport of sport climbing. He told us about the Youth Olympic Games and how he's training in the hopes of qualifying for Tokyo 2020. Take a listen. Josh, thanks so much for coming back and being on the show and telling us a little bit more about how you got into the sport and why you find sport climbing to be exciting. So tell, tell us, when did how old were you when you started climbing? Yeah, thanks for having me again, guys. I'm really excited. So I got into climbing when I was about four years old. 
that was officially at the first time at a rock climbing gym. Before then, I was climbing bookshelves and tabletops and lamps and trees and pretty much anything I can get my hands on. Um, I think this kind of goes back to a lot of little kids when they're growing up, they'll kind of be attracted to a couple different activities. Maybe one kid will be attracted to dancing or one kid will be attracted to swimming or running or jumping. And I just happen to be attracted to climbing. It's just a very natural, instinctual thing for me to do. And that same thing goes is very true for many, many kids out there all over the world. So fortunately, there happened to be two things that happened. One was that I got to try out an actual climbing wall at a local amusement park in Bay Area, Northern California, called Great America. They had about a 25, 30-foot tall climbing wall there. Tried it for the first time, loved it, and uh, I was like, I want to do more of this. So parents ended up doing some research into where in the Bay Area was the best place to do that. And one of our neighbors, I believe, had a guest pass to a local climbing gym in Mountain View, which is about 20 minutes from where I live. Um, And that climbing gym was called Twisters, which no longer exists as a climbing gym. They have a gymnastics center and they moved to Sunnyvale. But the climbing gym where I first started was in Mountain View. So I started out there and the very first time I ever went climbing in this gym, of course, I was really excited to do the activity that I always loved doing. But the problem was that it was in a huge group setting and there were a ton of other little kids running around causing chaos and generally being little kids. (laughs) And uh, for me, I was very, very shy at that point in time. was not used to group setting, didn't like having this big group environment to be in. And so my natural instinct was to just not be excited about it, not want to be part of the group environment. But I still love to climb. So fortunately, the head coach that was there, her name is Stacy. She saw that I was interested in climbing and maybe had some potential, but wasn't ready for the group environment. So she kind of took my parents inside and said, hey, you know, I think Joshua like has some potential, but maybe the, the group class isn't quite for him. So we'll try giving him some private lessons and see how that goes, and then we'll go from there. So with that initial, you know, belief in my abilities from the coach Tasty, that's really how I started climbing under her tutelage, basically. After that, she get, started giving me some lessons, and I got stronger, became more confident myself, and grew up basically with her being my guide. I don't know where I would be in life if it had not been for that initial belief in me from Stacy. So that was a huge, huge, huge turning point in my life. Uh, now looking back, and again, now I'm so thankful that that. Uh, relationship came to exist and and for her to be the mentor that she was to help me get out of my comfort zone and and try new things was just incredible for me to experience at such a young age so after that i started climbing more and more became more confident more strong uh, and after a couple years of being in private lessons with her i switched back onto the youth competitive team at twisters in mountain view and then at seven years old started competing And I guess you could say the rest of the history. So you were seven when you started competing. That is amazing. Thanks. (laughs) To just have that focus at that point and to know that that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, I was was really excited. And uh, it was something that I've been, again, really thankful to be able to do. Climbing competitions have taken me not just all over the state, all over the country, but all over the world. I've been able to meet some of my closest friends through climbing. I've traveled to so many incredible locations all over the world and gotten to explore so many different cultures and languages and people and, and places that it's it's just a huge blessing to be able to look back and say um, and, and know that that's something that has forever changed my life in a positive way. So when when you first started competing, did you start local and then keep branching out as you knew you had more talent? Yeah, yeah, and that's how I would guess most sports work. Um, in, in competitive climbing, uh, it's an individual sport, so you're competing for yourself, although they're, if you're part of a team, they'll tally it up as a, a team score at the end, uh, kind of fun as well, similar to you know gymnastics or track and field, these sorts of things. But in the end, it is an individual sport. So in climbing, I would compete at a local level in the Northern California area, and then if you qualify past the regional championships, you go on to the youth divisional championships, uh, and then that's like kind of the Pacific Northwest plus Northern California. And then if you qualify past there, then you get to compete at the national championship level. And then if you qualify top I think four was it at that point in time, you would then qualify for the Youth World Championships, which is held once a year uh, locations all over the world. And 
youth world championships are for athletes in climbing at least ages 14 to 19. So I competed in those for six years and got to compete in a number of different locations, all of which were incredible to go to and visit and explore. And among them being places like Singapore, Australia, France, got to go to Canada. That was the closest one I got to go to for Youth World Championship. Scotland, uh, yeah, and it took me all over the world for a number of years while I was kind of enjoying the process of being a young athlete growing up in the sport in uh, my teenage years. And then, of course, once you're able to you know, do well at those levels, you can also then compete at a senior level and try and qualify for the senior level U.S. or country's national team to compete at World Cup or senior world championship level events, which I also have done and am now continuing to do. When you go to, like, Australia or Singapore, your did mm-hmm. your parents, at least one parent comes with you, and do you build in vacation time around it, or...? Sometimes, uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. The first couple Youth World Championships I went to between 14 and 19, uh, my parents did come with me. We did either a vacation beforehand. Like, first one I went to was in Australia. So we went and did a, kind of a family trip to the Great Barrier Reef and did, like, a beach trip beforehand. But then as I got a little bit older, a little more you know, comfortable traveling by myself and traveling to new places, started traveling solo. Um, so like when I was 18, I actually went to, that was the year the world championships, youth world championships were in Singapore. And I traveled out there with my best friend, Charlie. He and I had been competing together since we were about 10 and he's from LA. So I didn't actually meet him until we were competing together at the international level, <laughs> interestingly enough, but we ended up coming really close and we still climb together all the time, even today. And at that point in time, we had just turned 18, and we're like, all right, we're going to go do a solo trip. So we decided to head out early before the Youth World Championships and went to Thailand for about two weeks to do some outdoor rock climbing there. And in Thailand, the outdoor rock climbing is world-renowned. It's some of the most incredible climbing you can find on these amazing limestone cliffs, uh, some of which are right over the water. So you can kind of climb over the water and then jump off if you want to. Um, it's a really incredible place. So I think the more experience, the more confidence I had with just traveling, knowing myself, knowing how to get around and navigate in a foreign place, the more I was able to be independent and figure out exactly how and when I'm going to be doing these international trips to these really cool places. So I had a good time. (laughs) Two teenage boys on their own in Thailand. What could go wrong? Exactly. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Then after Singapore, is that when you had the the Youth Olympic Games? At both Youth Olympic Games that I've been to, one in 2014 and one in 2018, I've been there in a uh, mentorship role. So one was for promoting the idea of including climbing in the Olympic Games uh, in 2014. That was before the decision that, to include it. And then after in 2015, 16, and 17, they decided to include climbing not only in the you know senior Olympic Games in Tokyo and now provisionally in Paris, but also in the Youth Olympic Games, which were in Buenos Aires last year for the first time. So again, it was kind of a before and after experience of one going to China to promote, okay, this is our sport, this is why we feel strongly about it being included in the Olympic Games, and then having that inclusion come to fruition and then seeing the final result in Buenos Aires with the first ever Olympic experience ever in the history of our sport. How was the transition from the youth level to the senior level for you? That is always a, a tough question, I think, because <laughs> it, it, it varies pretty wildly uh, with the sport, I would imagine. And in some sports, you know, the transition comes much later in your career, like the level of competitiveness is usually like a little bit later in your athletic career when you get to the higher senior levels. But with climbing, uh, I think it's, you could, you could compare it pretty easily, I think, to gymnastics I mean, how, because it's such a body weight dependent activity and there's flexibility and strength and, and technique involved, we're seeing a very high level from athletes at a pretty young age. So in international climbing, you can start competing at the senior level from when you're 16 and older. 
So I started doing that, of course, right when I turned 16, I, I couldn't wait. <laughs> so I decided, okay, I want to go try this out, see how it goes. And for me, and interestingly enough, the initial experience into senior level you know, competition climbing at a national, even international level was really exciting. And uh, interestingly, not nearly as much pressure as there was in youth climbing. Because I think in youth climbing, there's so much pressure on you as an athlete to perform at an extraordinarily high level from your peers, your parents, yourself. Um, and you just put all this maybe unnecessary expectations on yourself to try and perform at a super high level because it just feels like so much more of a self-inflicted uh, like thing you really want to do well. Like you want to do well right in front of you know, the, the people that are the exact same age as you, in front of your parents, in front of your peers, and it's, it's a really high-pressure situation. Whereas, you know, my first ever senior level competition, all that pressure, it felt like just went away. And I was like, oh, you know, this is great. I can compete against people that are way older than I am. And, you know, my parents don't have nearly as much expectations as, you know, I, I perceived of them. And I had way less expectations of myself. So it was a lot more fun, a lot more laid back. And uh, for me, it just felt like a huge relief actually to do what could be conceived as, you know, much higher level pressure situation. Transitioning from youth to senior level competitions um, actually was quite easy in some ways and actually even more relaxed and more fun of an environment just because there's less pressure to have that, you know, number one seed and, and like perform really well, um, which actually allows for some better performances sometimes too because, because you don't have the expectations in yourself and the high level of stress and pressure that's usually when the best results come about. And actually at my first ever senior level competitions that I went to, I made finals in all three of the competitive disciplines of climbing, uh, lead climbing, bouldering, and speed climbing. So I made finals at nationals for all three of those. And I actually ended up uh, in third place in speed climbing and one spot off the podium in lead climbing and made finals in bouldering. So <laughs> it was an incredible year for me, even at the age of 16 of being able to come into it and, and really be able to step up and not have any expectations or pressure and really be able to feel free to perform at my absolute best. Do you find that as the years have gone on and the expectations in yourself, obviously, and the way you've moved up the ranks, do you feel more pressure now? Has that come back as it did when you were a teenager in the youth ranks? I think the pressure itself from competitive climbing, especially now that I've gone through many years of it and now I'm competing at a much higher level, um, and that's the kind of sole focus of where I'm at as an athlete right now, it's a little bit different in the sense that, yeah, there's a little pressure that I would like to succeed, and this is kind of the sole focus of my training and my, my way of life as of right now. But I've also gone through a number of other changes that I think have alleviated some of the pressure, uh, namely uh, going through college and being able to understand uh, there's a lot more things that I can do with the applications that I've learned from sport in my life. And I think knowing that and having this more branched out identity of, of seeing all the things that I can do beyond just being an athlete and being a climber because uh, I think that's all a lot of young athletes identify. They, they see themselves as who they are in their sport and whatever their result they had in the most recent competition they had, like that's how they see their self-worth. And I think that's, that's I don't want to say important, but like it's, it's very easy to fall into that as a young athlete because that's who you are and that's what you do and that's what all, all your peers identify. But for me, a, a big and huge and almost necessary step in my athletic career was um, taking time off. And going through the college route and, and understanding all the different things I can do. Um, and even, you know, having I had a huge shoulder injury in 2014, which forced me to take off a full year of competition climbing um, and taking that step back um, and really looking at you know, who I am, how I identify um, and what I can do with the skills and attributes I've learned, not only through climbing, but through my academic career as well. That's actually a huge, huge help for me as an athlete, uh, just because I know that, you know, whatever result I have, whatever my performance is, it's not tied into my identity of who I am. Um, you know, of course, I, I really want to do well, and that's why I'm here as an athlete training for the Tokyo Olympic Games. It's a huge, huge, huge goal of mine, um, and I really want to succeed. <laughs> 
But at the same time, I am fully aware that, like, you know, my competition result is not who I am. And I have intrinsic value to myself and my self-worth is, is for me, far greater than just the last competition results I had. So knowing that and understanding that, again, like, I can do way more things beyond the scope of just who I am on the playing field um, has helped me out in a tremendous number of ways. Again, not only through just my competition results, but knowing who I am, what I can do, and what the future holds in store for me beyond the scope of the competition field. Did you think about quitting when you got hurt? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, every athlete who's been through a major injury, you you go through a huge wealth of emotions and thought processes that you know, wind up going you know, from the, the very best of what could happen to the very first of what could happen out of your injury. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge both ends of the spectrum and to uh, kind of test the extreme, so to speak, <laughs> and see which you know, and if, if not somewhere in the middle, that is still interesting for you to continue in your sport. So, of course, as I took some time off, you know, I had a lot of time to reflect and understand where I was going in my sport. And through that process, I was able to find, again, not, not only value in taking time off, but value in going back as well. And for me, that was a huge mental shift I was able to go through just because it helped me understand, okay, you know, I am not my most recent competition result. I have far more value to myself than just who I am as an athlete. But this thing, this sport that I love to do, climbing, is something that I do love to do and I want to go back. And because I'm able to make that conscious choice each and every day that, okay, this is something I do love to continue to do. I am not forcing myself to be you know, in this position I am trying to train as hard as I possibly can, putting myself through these really brutal training cycles um, for something that maybe I, I don't love to do. I, I do have that choice and that question to myself that I can continually you know, reflect back on is, is, is this something I do love to do? And every time I go through that process and am able to you know look at that and have an affirmative answer, that actually makes the bond I have to the sport even stronger. Which, be, which means for me, it's not that I'm feeling forced that I'm here. I'm not feeling like my peers are expecting me to be here. You know, uh, my parents, you know, they, it's not like I have pressure for them to be here. I am here and I'm doing this sport. I'm here as a climber because I want to be here and I love climbing. Okay. So the goal we know is Tokyo 2020. What? Absolutely. Yeah. What is the qualification process for you? What's the timing? When will you know if you're going? Great question. So for each sport for Tokyo, their qualification process is vastly different. Some countries have, you know, an, a set quota, like, okay, if you're you know, top three from the U.S., then you get to go. But because climbing is a new sport, it'll be one of the five new sports in Tokyo, they're bringing back baseball and softball, and then they're going to have climbing, skateboarding, surfing, and karate, those other four. And because they're bringing in so many new sports, and the Olympics is already jam-packed as it is, they had to, again, limit the number of participants. So number of participants in sport climbing for this Olympic Games in Tokyo will be 20 athletes per gender. So 20 male athletes, 20 female athletes from the whole world. <laughs> So the way you qualify is not based on necessarily your country, first and foremost. It's based on your international results. So the first competition where you can qualify for the Olympic Games in 2020 will be actually this year, 2019, in Tokyo itself at the Climbing World Championships. So they will take the top seven competitors from this year's World Championships in Tokyo. Uh, that'll be in August. So if I place top seven, then I will be able to go, which would be great. <laughs> but you have to make it there first. So you have to be top five or six in your country, and then those countries can send those representatives. And then if you make it to the Tokyo World Championships this year and place top seven, then provisionally you get to go. The only catch to that is that if, they have a, a maximum number of athletes that our international federation has decided uh, is the cap. 
because you don't want one country to have all the spots, which could happen in theory. I don't think will happen, but they've set a, a maximum quota per country at two athletes per country per gender. So what that means is if you are, say, like if I was going to go and compete and I were to go and place third at this year's world championships, okay, great, that's in the top seven. But if the first two competitors were also American, that means that they would earn their spots to go to the Olympics and I would not, even though I was the third best in the world. So that's one possible scenario that could happen, which means that for some people, they'll end up being, you know, the 21st, 22nd, you know, 27th best climber in the world and earn a spot to go to the Olympics just because some countries have filled up their quota already. So yeah, the first competition will be this year at the World Championships, top seven will go, and then there'll be a second competition uh, in November in France, top six from that competition will go, so seven and six, that's 13. The next couple spots will go in February and March of next year at each continent, continental championship. So there'll be five of those. There'll be one for North and South America combined, one for Asia, one for Africa, one for Europe, and one for Oceania. So that's seven and six, 13 so far, plus an additional five from each of those continental championships. That's 18. The, one of the last spots will go to the host country, Japan. And then the final spot will go to what we call a uh, universality candidate, which is essentially countries, smaller nations that normally would not have representation at the Olympic Games can submit a bid process to have one of their athletes compete in the sport of climbing. Uh, and then one of those will be selected per gender. And that is the 20 spots that will be represented at the Tokyo Olympic Games next year. Okay, I'm glad you did the math. (laughs) (laughs) So you're an engineer and I'm not. So I have so many questions from what you just said. So my first question is, are there countries or what countries does that two limit really affect? Mm. You know, what are some of the countries? Yeah, the powerhouses. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So it's changed a lot over the years in competition climbing. I would say historically, it's been a lot of European nations who have done really, really well in competition climbing. And I would guess that that probably is kind of representative of the geography of Europe. There's a lot of mountains in Europe. Therefore, mountain culture has always been a big part of the society in Europe. Uh, And therefore, their mountaineering clubs and structure of how they fund you know, competitions has always been geared towards, you know, mountaineering sort of activities. So skiing, alpinism, hiking, mountain biking, etc. cetera. Uh, it, it's really widespread in Europe. And historically, Europeans have always done the best in competition climbing. That being said, with the advent of indoor rock climbing gyms, there have been a lot more nations around the world that have seen a huge upsurge in their participation in the sport of, you know, competition climbing. So in the past couple of years, uh, we've seen countries that do not traditionally have or may be associated with climbing you know, come in and have a really strong showing. So, for example, right now, Japan. Japan would be the number one country in the world that would you know, probably max out <laughs> both of their quotas for male and female. So, again, they're, they're going to have an amazing showing. I'm really excited to see you know, how they're going to do next year in Tokyo. But also, if you're the third best Japanese climber, that is going to be pretty pretty tough because they're almost certainly going to have multiple, if not you know, three, five, maybe even ten climbers in the top 20, which has happened before in international competitions, that they're just so gifted and talented and have such a good base that for sure, like the the number three competitor, or number four or five, will not be able to go to the Olympics. So that'll be pretty tough. Also, right now, uh, the prize country, I would say, coming out of Europe. So again, traditionally, a lot of Western European countries have done exceptionally well in competition climbing, so like France, Germany, Spain, the UK, Switzerland, Italy, etc. Like they all do really well. Like those countries have always done very, very well. But Slovenia, uh, which is a smaller kind of Eastern European country, is, is done extraordinarily well in the past couple of years. So right now, I'd say Slovenia and Japan are up there with contenders for top spots on the podium, if not maxing out all of their positions through Olympic Games. Um, other countries that are really strong include Austria. Austria has always been outstanding for all sorts of different aspects of climbing. They've had, at the last 
world championships at multiple world championships, multiple world championships across multiple categories. Russia has always been dominant. And interestingly, we've had a couple more countries in speed climbing specifically come about that have been doing really well. But those have been Iran, Indonesia, Korea, Ecuador, and a lot of countries that you guess maybe wouldn't necessarily associate it with mountain culture or or climbing culture itself. But because of indoor rock climbing making things more accessible, those countries have started doing really, really well in speed climbing specifically. So the thing with the Tokyo Games next year, as I explained in the last podcast, is that it's a combined event. So you have to do three different events, speed climbing, lead climbing, and bouldering. And your score is based on a combined score of all three of those. So speed climbing specialists may or may not make it to Tokyo. It will be kind of unlikely at this point. But uh, looking further ahead to, to Paris 2024, speed climbing it, as of right now, has been proposed to be its own separate medal event. So climbers from those countries that I mentioned, so you know, uh, Iran and Indonesia and Korea and Ecuador, um, I think athletes from those countries have a really good chance of doing well a little bit further into the future. So maybe not this upcoming Olympics, but definitely the ones in the, a little bit further out would be cool to see them. But again, going back to your main question, I would say top two countries right now, maybe even you can throw in three, that could max out medal counts and possible quota spots would be Japan, Slovenia, and Austria. Those are my top three. You know, it would be great if one of the Austrian climbers had like, he would get to the top and he would yodel. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Like don't that would be his signature move. <laughs> Just going to throw that out to the yeah. Austrian climbers. We need a signature right. cooler. <laughs> Let them know. I think it's a good idea. Awesome. And, so, and then how is your competition in the U.S.? Because I got to ask that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, competition here in the U.S. Is, is really strong. We have a lot of incredibly talented athletes. I, I would guess that at least one athlete per gender from the U.S. will make the Olympic Games. Because, again, we do have a spot for each of the continental champions to go. So I, I think that we have a really good chance of sending at least one athlete per gender. Realistically, you know, we're, we're not one of the top three nations ranked in the world right now. We're not, you know, Austria or Slovenia or Japan. Uh, but we and do you have don't even know how to yodel. Exceptional athletes. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> I guess that's true. Maybe that's what we need to practice. <laughs> but, you know, we do have some incredibly exceptional athletes. The competition is, is really, really high and really good talent. And, you know, we, we've been focusing really heavily on preparing our athletes for these competitions in the past year, uh, we've been doing a lot of training camps. We've been bringing in route setters to help us get used to different styles of competition climbs, trying to increase our, our abilities in speed climbing. So again, we have a lot of talent. We have a lot of really motivated athletes. Um, I think for sure we will have a, at least one or two athletes from the U.S. to qualify for Tokyo. And speaking of training, so what you're training full time? Well, are you training full time? Yes. Okay. So what what does a typical training week look like for you? The the typical training week is, again, pretty atypical. Like, it changes pretty frequently (laughs) Uh, depending on, A, what competitions are coming up, B, where the competitions are, and I guess, yeah, C, like, uh, which which competitions they are. So I I need to figure out which discipline I'm doing, where the competition is going to be, how I'm going to train for it with the resources that I have. So I guess for this past week, I'm training right now currently for an upcoming competition that's going to be here in Colorado, where I'm at right now. But Nestle is the climbing competition will be one stop in a multi-competition World Cup series um, that I've been competing in for a number of events so far this year. So the first one I did was in Moscow about two months ago. Most recent one was in Munich last month, and then now I'm here in Colorado getting ready for the third one in Vail. All of these competitions so far, except for Moscow, have been only bouldering. That's the third of the three disciplines where you climb maybe 10 to 15 feet off the ground. Uh, There's no ropes, but there's safety masks to catch you if you fall. And the idea of bouldering is it's trying to test the most difficult physical climbing moves you can possibly do in a very short amount of space. 
So it's very physical, very demanding, uh, and very mental as well because you have to figure out how to do these climbs, we call them problems, in five minutes or less with no outside help or information. So you're literally turning around, seeing a climb that you've never seen before in your entire life, and you have five minutes to try and do it. So it's really exciting because it's not only a physical challenge, but a very mental challenge as well. I was going to say, no, they've they've had some of those on the Olympic Channel. So I know I've seen a yeah. little bit of them and the bouldering. Absolutely. And I did find a new I, – I officiate roller derby, so I like the officials in all the sports. And I did see right. that my new favorite job to do would be wiping off the boulders in between. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that, in, in between each of the climbers, the there's a couple of volunteers that come up with these big brushes – um, you can imagine like a hair brush, but like on a stick that's like eight feet long. <laughs> and then what they do is they, they wipe off the excess chalk from these holds that they've been climbed on, you know, one, two, three, five, 10, 20, 50, like a hundred climbers sometimes in a row. Uh, you can imagine how much sweat and chalk and, and dust and sometimes blood gets like built up on these holds, which makes the friction, which is ultra, ultra important in climbing much worse over time <laughs> so it's a really important job for these brushes to make sure that the texture uh, stays as good as possible for as long as possible so you mentioned um, you're out in colorado yeah. um you're yes. at the usoc training center i did not go to it this time around although some of my teammates were able to train there so at, right now I'm, I'm staying with one of my friends in boulder colorado and I'm doing some training at some of the local indoor climbing gyms here, as well as uh, in Denver. And a lot of the training has been focused on a couple different things for me specifically. I've kind of broken it down into a couple different elements of cardio. That's like really important for being up at elevation here. So I'm trying to do a lot of running. Uh, I'm doing a lot of power-based climbing. So like trying to do as much explosivity and pull-related strength, like doing pull-ups and you know, weights and all these things and making sure that I have a lot of explosivity in my climbing, um, making sure I have power endurance. So not only how, what's the single most you know, heaviest weight or how, many, how far can I jump through like one single move, but how often can I repeat that over the course of you know, an hour, half an hour, or 45 minutes uh, that goes into a competition round of bouldering. So you have to be able to have a lot more in the tank than just one single climb. You have to be able to pull it out many times over the course of a five-climb uh, round of competition, which is how many climbs are in a bouldering qualification round. So power, power endurance, cardio, uh, I'm working my finger strength, my technique, and, of course, competition simulation. So yesterday, we met up with the, a bunch of other athletes who are also on the U.S. national team, they went over to a climbing gym in Denver, which is where they had basically a huge chunk of the gym set aside specifically for a competition simulation. So if you were to walk into most climbing, like indoor climbing gyms anywhere around the country or even around the world, they'll have, uh, in the bouldering area at least, you know, hundreds of climbs set up uh, in pretty close proximity to each other, some of them overlapping and it, it makes for a really fun you know, experience if you're going there and just having a good time or getting in a workout. But in competitions, they'll actually clear off an entire section of wall. So you have a 15-foot tall wall, uh, and maybe if you have a 10-foot or 15-foot wide space, there'll be you know, 15 to 20 different climbing routes in that space. But in competitions, there's only one route in that whole space. And that's because the idea is you're only – you're allowed to use any hold in that space to try and get yourself to the top of the wall. So that's what they did at this gym. They set aside a humongous chunk of their gym specifically for competition simulations. And we just went around uh, trying to do each of these climbs in as few attempts as we possibly could. So it was much more about the mental side of turning around, seeing a climb you've never seen before, and trying to use all the tricks that you have in your tool bag to get at the top in as few attempts as possible. I want to know, and I, this goes a little bit back from to the transition, and you, you mentioned a little mm -hmm. bit about uh, how younger kids are a lot faster, like in uh, gymnastics, you'll, you'll see that same thing. But as your body has changed, as you've grown older, what have you lost and what have you gained in what you can do? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I mean, some of the things that you lose are like a lot of the, the fear associated with climbing. Like when you're super young, you'll just go for stuff and you have no idea whether you'll be able to stick it or whether or not like you're going to fall and, you know, you know, have a terrible injury. You just don't have that same, <laughs> I guess, like fear of, of much of anything. Um, and when you're younger, you're able to like, you, you'll, <laughs> whenever I go to the climbing gym and I watch little kids, you know, run around and try stuff, they'll, they'll put their entire soul into trying this one move that is is way too difficult for them or way too big uh but they'll try it anyways and they'll just go for it because they just don't have the the innate fear that maybe a uh, grown-ups or adults have of uh, saying oh well i've seen that move before that could potentially cause an injury or or like I, I don't think i'm good enough for that so i won't try it or anything like this and kids will just go for it you know they'll, they'll have no fear they have no the, the risk taking is, is quite high and they'll go for stuff that like sometimes they'll be able to do and it's it's really impressive and also i think when you're younger your ability to like not get injured is quite a bit higher so you'll see kids like hit the ground at a really terrible angle and you're like "Ooh, that looked really painful and they'll just bounce up <laughs> uh and it'll it'll like it won't even look like it affects them at all <laughs> whereas sometimes you know you'll see someone who's a little bit older or adult take a kind of not so good fall and Sometimes, unfortunately, ends in injury. So I think kids are just more likely and, and more able to mentally just try stuff that's, you know, sometimes beyond their ability. And that's why, especially in a, a facility like an indoor climbing gym that has now been uh, made quite safe and, and quite able to, you know, test your limits physically rather than, you know, by testing your limits in a danger element by outdoor rock climbing. Sometimes. <laughs> now, that being said, outdoor rock climbing, for the most part, can be made very, very safe with advances in technology. But yeah, kids in general are able to go for things much easier. But, you know, with, the, with experience through climbing, uh, you're able to have a much better understanding of movement and things that you may have done wrong in the past, especially in competition. Experience does come into play quite a bit. And so even though there's a lot of really young, talented athletes out there, even right now in competitions, like there's still plenty of athletes who are up in their mid to late 20s, even 30s, and sometimes almost 40 years old, like doing extraordinarily well. So we've seen that at the, even at the local level through even the World Cup level. So it's, it's pretty cool to see quite a range of abilities ranging from athletes, excuse me, uh, even like in the World Cup series right now, that are as young as 16 doing extraordinarily well to as old as maybe mid to late thirties still winning world cup events. We're too old, Jill. No, we're not too old. We're at the age where we look at the wall and we get injured. (laughs) That's okay. Oh, I mean, the great thing about climbing is that, you know, it's, it's a lifetime sport, you know, it's something that you can compete in for, you know, as much as you want. Although we've seen, kind of a limit to high level of competition be maybe mid thirties, but you know, as a recreational activity, people, I, I know people personally who are climbing well into their, you know, 60, 70, even 80, 80 years old. So it's still a sport that uh, as a low level of impact, you can do recreationally for virtually your entire life, if not, you know, <laughs> 90s, even older than hundred. So I think that's something that we will see continuing in the next couple of decades. You know, people will continue to push the sport as far as the upper ends of it will go and also the younger ends. So I think it's, for me, such a great activity to be involved in simply because it's something that you can have be involved in your life in many different ways for your entire lifetime. Okay, Josh, I don't think we can push the lower end if you were starting at four. <laughs> I, I don't oh, think we're... <laughs> You'd be surprised. I, I think they should have the ability to walk. That's just a, that might be. A I, I don't know about st- that. I know, because toddlers, it's, the first thing they do is climb out of the crib, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, there's been plenty of, like, I think there was this one kid, uh, their parents and their, their, you know, toddler were featured on the Ellen show because their, their child was like, climbing up stuff before she could walk <laughs> and this was just something that like oh yeah we'll have her on the island show and we'll have her you know climb this little rock wall but i don't know if she can walk but she can definitely climb <laughs> true kids can climb often before they can walk well thank you josh we really appreciate yeah. you spending more time with us thank you so much josh you can find josh online at his website josh on twitter he is josh 11 one 
On Facebook, he is josh.c.levin. On Insta, he is josh.levin. And on LinkedIn, he is Levin Josh. And we will have links to all of that stuff in the show notes. I love Josh. Can I say, like, all of our Team Olympic Fever members named Josh are so lovely. They are. And what was really funny was right after, the day after we spoke to him, somebody sent around a video of this maybe two-year-old climbing on one of the walls. And I said, huh, Josh wasn't kidding when he said, you don't even need to be able to walk very well to start climbing. So this kid was good. He was getting up there. So it was very timely. Wow. Yeah, I know talking to him and then and also going through and editing this interview and listening to it a few times, it makes me want to go try sport climbing. And I've tried it once or twice here and there, just like, oh, hey, you want to try some rock climbing? But, I, you know, he's all excited about it. I'm excited. If, if I see it on TV, I want to watch it now. So I'm looking forward to it in the Olympics. Do you have a sport climbing facility near you? Well, we have gone past a rock climbing gym that okay. it's located within a church. So I don't know what the situation is there, but it's true. So I I will have to look and see. Well, you know, God will be with you holding you up. Pretty much, pretty much. That's your safety gear. (laughs) It's your guardian angel. We'd like to give a thank you to all of our Patreon patrons. You know, it takes a good 20 to 25 hours to put a show together, and our patrons really help us in providing the financial support, not just for the elements of the show that cost us money, but also for the time that we put into it. So if you believe this in the show and would like to support our efforts, please visit patreon.com slash oldandfever. We have patron levels for a variety of budgets, and some of them even include bonus tape, including what what's coming up is going to be some tape of Josh talking about his experience is competing on American Ninja Warrior, which is, I think it was cool. It was fun. He had a lot of good stories from from that. And it, of course, sent me down the rabbit hole of watching (laughs) all his videos because I had not seen them. That stuff is amazing. Oh, Ninja Warrior looks so tough. But it's so much fun to watch because it's everybody against the obstacle. And everybody is rooting for everybody. And it's just, it's so much fun to watch. Yeah, And it seemed like Josh has said that about climbing, how they all Mm -hmm. talk about the different courses and, oh, they give each other tips. So it feeds into that as well. So I see see why he, he likes both so much. Exactly. All right. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Oh, Samantha Achterberg, our modern pentathlete, won her sixth national championship over the weekend. Yay, that was so exciting. I mean, she's she's had a really good year. I'm really, really proud of her. Um, and then we got some cool news from the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant. He is narrating a series for trackwrestling.com. And the World Wrestling Championships are in about 100 days. And so he is doing 100 profiles of who is who in the wrestling world. And these are only like two minutes long. So they're really great quick hits to get to know who the competitors are and what they've accomplished. And you can do this while you're getting ready to watch a match. And Jason said that a lot of the people that he's going to feature will probably be at Tokyo too. So it's great to like learn about them ahead of time or even like when it's Tokyo and you're getting ready to watch something, you can re-listen to it real quick while they're doing all the prepping for the match that you're going to watch. So it is already on Spreaker and it's uh, the last I knew it was waiting to be approved by Apple Podcasts. But you can also go to trackwrestling.com and we'll we'll put a link to the show notes. But it's really a great series. And if you're curious about wrestling and want to know a little bit more about it, there's nobody better to tell you than the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant. And you get all those minutes of just listening to his voice. I know, right? <laughs> and you know what? When you watch a sport... And this is, I mean, this is part of the reason we do what we do. It's so much better when you know who the people are and you understand the context and you can see where it's all coming from. And bonus, it's Jason telling you. Right. I mean, come on. So exciting. All right. This weekend, don't forget, is Olympic Day. Olympic Day is June 23rd, and that falls on Sunday this year. Team USA is sponsoring a virtual race that anybody can do anywhere in the world. Basically, you sign up on charityfootprints.com. Sign up for the uh, 
uh, Olympic Day virtual race, you can join a team. So please join Team Olympic Fever podcast. We have several listeners out there on the team already. And we are uh, so far we're in sixth place on the leaderboard in terms of miles logged already. So that's I'm really proud. So we would make the super final. Yes, we would make the super final so far if it's a head-to-head match. And we've started late. Some people were starting this already in June. So please sign up. Please join the team. At the end, once you've completed the three miles, however you do it, you can walk, you can run, you can roll, you can bike, you can Row. row, which is great. And you basically log your miles. You can download their app and it tracks your app or you can uh, hook it up with your Fitbit or others. it's compatible with a few different fitness trackers. So join the team, join the fun. I think it'll be fun. Moving on to our Tokyo 2020 update. We got a lot of news from Tokyo this week. First off, their rowing facility is open. So the rowing venue is ready to go. The the rowing federation is very pleased with it. So it needs a few tweaks, but like it's going to be in great shape. And Excellent. So that's some cool news that to the that preparations are really going well in terms of getting everything done. It'll be different from other previous games. Looking at you, Rio. Also, Japan is implementing a plastic bag fee before the Tokyo Games, so that's going to go into effect relatively soon. And in Japan, there's a lot of convenience store culture, especially in Tokyo. You buy a lot of stuff at convenience stores. So they're trying to shift their bag usage towards biodegradable alternatives, and they're also trying to shift away from single-use plastics. So they want to charge the fee as early as April 1st of next year, but be aware that you might have to pay for plastic bags if you go over there. So, you know, if you get one of those little reusable bags that folds up into a little flat thing or rolls into a little pouch, you might want to throw that in your uh, suitcase. So bring your reusable shopping bag and your Visa card. Or you might be able to buy a reusable tote at the Tokyo 2020 store. Oh, I'm sure. This is cool. Speaking of venue stuff, school children in areas that are hosting the games are growing flowers that they're putting in the security screening areas. So that when you go through security to get into the venue, you will have to go through flower lanes. Isn't oh, that's that, nice. Isn't that a cool idea? So it's making the little area look prettier and you forget that you're, hey, I've got to go through security. But all of the lanes that you go through, there's going to be lined with flowers. That, It'll that be like be a growing. wedding every time you go to an event. Yeah. That's and then nice. they're also going to have personal messages attached to each flower, which spectators can read while they wait to go into the venues. Oh, they're really taking a cue from Disney on this one. Right. It's another way that Japan and the organizing committee is really stepping up with the cool, neat, little tiny things that make it special and getting, also getting more of the population involved in the games. Brilliant. Also, applications for the torch relay torch bearers are open, and we will have some links to this on the website. The application opened up uh, this past week, and they're looking for about 10,000 torchbearers. So about 5,000 of those will be members of the public. So the torch relay is going to go through all 47 of the Japanese prefectures until it gets to the cauldron. And the relay is going to start on March 26th. It says that all people are eligible to apply regardless of nationality, age, gender, or impairment. You just have to be born on or before April 1st, 2008. Okay. So they want of a certain age. Yes. Very exciting. You too could be part of the torch relay. And we've talked to different torch bearers and how special that is. Right. It is a process to get in. So it's very, I'm sure, much like the ticket sales, it will be over applied to. But, you know, it's worth a shot. Why not? You could get something special. Like the uniform. Speaking of uniforms, Italy has released its uniform for the summer games. So Armani is the fashion designer that has been doing the Italian uniforms for a long time. And at their recent Milan fashion show, they debuted the tracksuits that are coming out. And these look, yeah, <laughs> you, you have opinions. You know, Giorgio, you hurt my soul with this uniform. Really? It did because it's part twister mat, kind of part pregnancy shirt, part stop sign. 
And part pizza pie. And part pizza pie. I mean, it's just... Okay, so it is a blue, a navy blue tracksuit with a giant circle right on the main part of the torso with its segmented green, white, and red, you know, of the colors of the Italian flag. But they're triangular segments, so it does look like somebody cut the pizza in a weird way. And just the way it's a circle right in the center, when I first looked at it, it almost looked like they cut the circle out because your pregnant belly wouldn't fit. So then they stuck another piece of fabric in to like make the jacket bigger. And then I thought immediately of the circles of a twister mat. Interesting. See, I I did not have that much of a visceral reaction. But they also look like on the sides of the pants, at least, it looks like they have a pinstripe thing that looks like the color of the red and white. Yeah, the green, red and white stripe down the side. So I think that kind of looks cool. And I like how on the back of the jacket, it says Italia down the back. In a yes, vertical it's not, line, so it's vertical as opposed to horizontal. But that unfortunate flag pizza on the front is just—it does really look like a little like a futuristic uh, movie. It looks like a sci-fi movie, like a sci-fi uniform that somebody would have to wear. I think it looks like the T-shirt from a pizza place, like the uniform the workers have to wear. <laughs> Like, this is Olympic pizza. <laughs> what topping would you like? I just, yeah. <laughs> Not one of your better efforts, Giorgio. Let's hope uh, the uh, opening ceremony outfit is better. Looking for, but, I'm, yes. But the models. Oh, yeah, of were, course. Were pretty easy on the eyes. <laughs> so that did make up for it. Team USA has started off its... Oreo truck tour, which is going to go around the country and have uh, an interactive social media experience. It started off already. It kicked off in Las Vegas and it is going to several locations around the country, both this summer and fall and next year. So be on the lookout. It's Oh, it'll be in Chicago this weekend for Pride. And uh, then it'll go to Milwaukee for Summerfest, Atlanta, Orlando, Philadelphia, and Charlotte this year. And then next year, it'll be in New York, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Dallas, Boston, Cincinnati, Washington, D.C., East Hanover, New Jersey, Houston, Texas, San Francisco, Nashville, L.A., and Colorado Springs. So plenty of chances to cook up with the Oreo cookie truck, uh, see some Team USA stuff. And I'm guessing you're going to get a sample or three of Oreo cookies. Right. And maybe it'll be the Oreo cookies that have the rings. They they do them where they print the rings on them. Yeah. Like the Team, Team USA. commemorative. Yes. Right. The Team USA cookies. But that'll be a lot of fun. Also, Great Britain has announced its Travel to Tokyo program, which is kind of a fun little fitness game series. It's geared towards children 5 to 11 and their parents. But I'm saying that like any age can totally play. So they have like something they call Tokyo 10 activities. And they're uh, a series of 10 minute activities you can do. And then you can log your activity on their tracker. So you can show Team GB how fit you're being. And we'll post some of this on our show notes and and on social media because uh, the activities look like a lot of fun. And already people on our Facebook groups are going to jump in and uh, do them. So you so, don't have to be British to participate. No, it's just it's downloads of different activities. They're fun little games you can play to get moving. And they've kind of got like a Tokyo tie in. Oh, that sounds so. like fun. Mm-hmm. All right. Don't forget to pick up our next book club book, Making Waves, My Journey to Winning Olympic Gold and Defeating the East German Doping Program by Shirley Babishoff with Chris Epting. Go through our website, olimfever.com, and you shop at the book club page through Amazon, and that will give us a little love in the terms of a commission. And our book club meeting will be our July 11th episode. So let us know what you think. You can reach us on email at info at olimfever.com, on Twitter and Insta, we're olimfever. And you can also find us on Facebook. We have a page, just Olympic Fever Podcast, but it's more fun when you join the Olympic Fever Podcast group and we can get a discussion going in there too and bring up points to talk about on the show. On that note, we will wrap it up for this week and we'll catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. 
Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Join the team, join the fun.